All right, welcome again. I'm Pastor Brian Foreman, and for the benefit of those who are watching online, welcome. We are at Cornerstone Community Church, where we inspire and equip people to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, knowing that following Jesus makes life better and makes you better at life. Exactly. Uh, everybody here has already had the opportunity to check in, but I'll just remind those of you who are listening or watching online that we would love to be able to welcome you personally and know who you are and keep in touch with you. And the way that you can do that is by checking in. Download our app or go to cornerstonenh.org org slash here and you will be able to do that. So we are, as I mentioned earlier, in a series called Unfinished Business here at Cornerstone. And it is all about, it's a study in the New Testament letter to Titus, the theme verse where the Apostle Paul says what he wants Titus to do is verse five, where it says, I left you on the island of Crete so that you could complete our work there. And the kind of the big overarching theme throughout this letter is that you are God's unfinished business and God never leaves business unfinished. And particularly, the Apostle Paul wanted Titus to take care of these things. This was his message. It's the message of Titus wrapped up in five words. And some of you will have heard this enough that you could give it back to me. So let's do it all together. Make sure our deeds line up with our creed so that we have people qualified to lead and our reputation won't impede that's what we're talking about right now as we meet urgent needs all right i know i kind of made that difficult for you unnecessarily but you did good so that's the the the, the book of titus in five words now today is kind of a continuation or a completion of the message that we had last week so i'm going to invite jesse gregoire to come on up because he's going to help me read the scripture for today he's going to read come on up uh, he's going to read the scripture that we looked at last week. This is for you. And I'm going to read to you another passage from the Gospel of Matthew. And this is a section of the Sermon on the Mount. And that will help us to understand and interpret. It's going to be like a case study that we will then apply to this scripture that we looked at earlier. So... Um, while you read that, because I wanted to read the other one in a different translation, and I need my iPad for that, I'm going to leave you all up here by yourself. So, And the, Jesse, I will want you to know, we've been talking about moving into this next phase of uh, Cornerstone. It's kind of like a second launch. Well, Jesse and his family were here for the first launch. <laughs> they were a part of the original core that launched Cornerstone. So there's a lot of faithfulness and a lot of uh, good stuff represented there. So he's gonna read the Titus passage. I'm gonna grab my iPad so I can read the Matthew passage for you. Good morning, you everyone. So promote right teaching, but as for you, promote the kind of living that reflects right teaching. Teach the older men to exercise self-control to be worthy of respect and to live wisely. They must have strong faith and be filled with love and patience. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that is appropriate for someone serving the Lord. They must not go around speaking evil of others and must not be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. These older women 
must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to take care of their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. In the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely in all they do, and you yourself must be an example to them by doing good deeds of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Let your teaching be so correct that it can't be criticized. Then those who want to argue will be ashamed because they won't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves must obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but they must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive in every way. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people, and we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with self-control, right conduct, and devotion to God. And while we look forward to that wonderful event when the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed, he gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to what is right. You must teach these things and encourage your people to do them, correcting them when necessary. You have the authority to do this, so don't let anyone ignore you or disregard what you say. Great. Stay here with me. Uh, This is Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. All right, thank you very much. Now, just for context, last week when we were looking at the passage in Titus, we saw that although he gives instruction to a bunch of different people and a variety of different instructions, that there's one overarching theme throughout it all, and I just want to remind you what that was. We said in last week's message that the whole point of the passage was not to give your opposition ammunition, and in verse 11, it kind of gives the summary statement, bringing salvation to all people. In other words, now that salvation is available to everyone, let's make sure that it is made available to everyone and that we don't put any unnecessary barriers. And there were two ways that we could do that. By doing wrong, you could give your opposition ammunition. And in that theme verse of 11 and 12, that theme statement, the Apostle Paul turns about turn, talks about turning from godless living. And he also says you could give your opposition ammunition with objectionable conduct. And we see that addressed in the second part of verse 12, where he says to live in this world with wisdom, to live in this world with wisdom. Now, as we were looking through, and this is why you you might have left last week with a little bit of a sense of the incompleteness, because yes, it's important for you not to give your opposition ammunition, but within those different instructions that we were given, there was a lot that was pretty obvious and easy to understand and apply, and some that might cause people to pause 
or have consideration. I said that this was, as I looked at the book of Titus and preaching through the book of Titus, this was the one passage that gave me a little bit of pause because it was talking about wives submitting to their husbands and also dealing with the issue of slavery. So those are the kind of bumps in the road that would have to be addressed if we were going to go through the whole thing. Now, that may not be an issue for you. You may have worked that out, but I can guarantee you that there are people that you care about, that you know, that you love, that you would like to see here with you on Sunday morning, or at least considering the claims of Christ, for whom this kind of thing is a big stumbling block. And the whole idea last week when we were talking about in the, in the message called shovel is that there are ways that you can either dig a hole and make it harder for people, something that they would trip into on the way to Jesus, or you can fill in the hole and make it easier. So we want to fill it in. And in addition to the people that you know and care about having issues with this, it's something that you, if you're a follower of Jesus, should be able to navigate successfully and be able to explain to others when they read the scriptures and when you read the scriptures why certain parts of it are applied and adapted and lived out in different ways. You should be able to explain it. So that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to give you a formula, a process by which you can apply the scriptures with skill and with accuracy. Today's message is called ROI. Now, <clears throat> most of the time we think of that as return on investment. I'm borrowing that acronym and I'm giving it a totally different meaning. So it doesn't mean return on investment. We'll talk about what it means in just a second. The question that we are answering is this one. How do I determine what is an absolute or a contextual ethic? How do I determine what is an absolute or contextual ethic. <clears throat> now, I imagine that many of you, when you woke up this morning, you were saying to yourself, I sure hope Brian talks about what's an absolute or a contextual ethic. That is the pressing need in my life today. Now, you may not have awakened like that, but once I, you might even know what that means. I'm not sure what I know what that means on first blush, but when we talk about it, you will understand why it's important for you to understand it and how it helps others on their way to figuring out whether or not to follow Jesus. It is a big issue. So what are we talking about? Absolute or contextual ethic. When the Bible tells us something or says something, is that something that is an absolute, that's good at all times and in all places, or is it contextual? Now we automatically do this when we read anything, including the Bible. For example, in one of the pastoral epistles, that's First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul tells Timothy to bring his cloak to when he comes to visit him. Now there's none of us that take that as an absolute ethic and read that and say, I've got to figure out a way to get Paul his coat. No, we, we do that automatically. We recognize that that's contextual. As one author puts, the Bible is written for us, but it is not necessarily written to us. That was written from Paul to Timothy in a specific time and place. Now, those kinds of commands are easy to figure out 
others not so much. And in this passage, we see some of those not so easy to interpret passages. It's hard to figure out what's an absolute or a contextual ethic, and people have come down at different places at different times on one side or the other for the same command. Let me just walk you through it, and you'll see what I mean. So here in Titus verses 9 and 10, we see uh, it says, they must not steal. Now, we know that the Apostle Paul is writing to Titus, it's Christians, and they're saying Christians, basically, whoever the they is, they probably shouldn't steal. That's probably a good thing. They shouldn't steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Now, most of us would say, well, that's pretty easy to figure out. If you're following Jesus, if you claim the name of Christ, you should probably not be a thief, and you should probably be trustworthy and good. But then you realize that the they that the apostle, the apostle Paul is speaking about is in the context of verse 9, which begins like this. <clears throat> Slaves must always obey their masters and do their best to please him. So the they that he's speaking to are slaves. And right before he said they shouldn't steal, they should be trustworthy, they should be good, he's said they should obey their masters and do their best to please him. So what does that mean? Does that mean that the Apostle Paul or the scriptures are in favor of slavery? It's not saying slaves try to get free. Tell your masters they shouldn't enslave you. It doesn't say, masters, you shouldn't be enslaving people. Set all of your slaves free. It just kind of accepts it as a given. So what does that mean? And then in the next uh, more challenging passage, it says, these older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. Uh, literally be husband lovers and children lovers. Now, that's, again, a pretty simple one. You know, there's not too many people that would say, get married but hate your husband, right? Or if you're going to have kids, it doesn't matter whether you like them or love them or not, you know, that you don't have any responsibility. No, that's pretty obvious that we're going to say that. And then it goes on, he's giving continued instruction to live wisely. Well, again, that's, that's pretty standard. Just about anybody, we could say you should probably be wise. Uh, to be pure, and in particular, it's talking about sexual purity. Most of the time in marriage, people generally want uh, a, a certain amount of exclusivity and commitment there, so that's pretty simple. To, but then it gets a little bit complicated to work in their homes. To be, if you're gonna, if you're gonna work as a wife, then you know, be sure that you're diligent, but you know, do it in your home. Well, that that brings up a little bit of a question, and that raises a couple of eyebrows. Then we switch back to do good. I mean, who's gonna argue with that? And then ending up with and to be submissive to their husbands. So you can see how it becomes a little bit more challenging because we've got these two kinds of ethics, and it's all mixed up in together. He doesn't say, this is good for all time and in all places do these things. This, we're just kind of dealing with a particular situation, so take that into account. It doesn't say that, and they're all kind of mixed up in together. And sometimes we can get confused because we try to apply either the absolute to everything, at all times and all places, do this, or we get, go a little bit too far in making it contextual and we justify or get around certain things that probably should be absolutes. So the question today is how do you figure that out? 
How do you figure that out? Some of it's kind of intuitive, but some of it is not so much. So we're talking about today this idea of application. And the bottom line, the thing that I want you to remember is this, to apply, use ROI. And I'll explain what that means in just a second. That asterisk is there to remind me that this formula is from, uh, I, I've adapted a formula given by an author named William J. Webb. There are notes in your growth guide about his book. It's something that I realize that I and many other people do kind of intuitively, but the benefit of what he has done is he's made it explicit. And he uses X, Y, and Z to, uh, to, to uh, illustrate the R, what I've turned into ROI, but it's the same kind of idea and I wanna give credit where credit is due. So what is ROI? The first step, and don't worry about writing this down because we'll go back through this again, is to recognize the original context. Second step, the O, is to observe the biblical prescription. And the third is to identify the ultimate ethic. Identify the ultimate ethic. And at the end, when I give you a practical step, this is what I'm going to suggest to you. To ask the Lord to show you where you've misunderstood or underestimated his goodness. And here's how that's gonna make sense. Because when we see these commands, some people use it as a justification for rejecting Christianity and Jesus and faith. But I think that that's generally based on a misunderstanding and a misapplication of some of the very things that we'll be talking about today. So you may be somebody who is an authentic follower of Jesus, but some of these passages have caused you to struggle and you haven't figured out an answer to them. Or maybe you're not following Jesus and this is part of the reason why. Ask the Lord to show you where you've misunderstood or underestimated his goodness. And usually we pray after we read the scripture, but right now is when we're gonna pray today. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, I pray that you would speak to each of us individually. Show us the things that we need to know and understand so that we might know and understand you better. We need your insight. We need your grace. We need your help. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant it in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so remember when we were reading the scriptures earlier, I said I was going to use Matthew as a case study. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to apply using ROI. And the first step is to recognize the original context. If you're taking notes, this is where you can put that in the fill in the blank because that's where we are now. Now, this is a concept, this idea of the context, that is something that we've talked about before. In fact, when we were doing the paradigm series about how to read and understand the Bible, our number six pillar was this, that the Bible is contextual literature. It was written in a particular time and place. Therefore, if you're going to understand it and apply it accurately and skillfully, you have to remember that context is king. It was written in a particular time and place. Every word is a part of a sentence, and every sentence is a part of a paragraph, and every paragraph is a part of a larger theme. So we need to understand that, and when we're going to apply it, we need to take that into, um, into um, what's the word I'm looking for? Consideration, thank you very much. <laughs> take it into consideration. So let's start with the context. Again, using Matthew chapter five as our 
uh, case study. You have heard that the law says punishment must match the injury. Now, I particularly read to you a different translation, the CSB, because it's a more literal translation. We generally use the New Living Translation, and what the New Living Translation does often is try to give you some help. So it just says, Jesus says, you heard it said, but they would have understood, and the New Living Translation is helping us to understand that the point of what is going to be said next is this, that the punishment must match the injury. So it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, in order to understand the context for that, you would have to know what's the biblical context. Well, this is actually quoting something from the Old Testament. And it's part of the Old Testament law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Now, to us, looking back on that, that seems, that's a little bit barbaric. I mean, we don't generally do that. If you accidentally knock somebody's tooth out, they generally don't come at you with pliers, right? We don't allow that in our culture. But in the original context, what was happening was somebody would accidentally knock out somebody's tooth and then they would go and burn the other person's house down or maybe uh, kill them for doing that. So the original context was unlimited vengeance. If somebody does something to you, you go back at them 10 times as hard. You get them back and you make them pay. And what the law is doing in this case, this Old Testament scripture is saying, look, there should be, there should be a little bit of, 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 um, of balance here. And so if somebody knocks your tooth out, then don't go beyond uh, taking their tooth. It's limiting this idea of vengeance. Now, how would you know something like that? That comes to our first actionable next step. I would suggest that everybody have a study Bible. I have for a long time recommended this particular one, the Life Application Study Bible, New Living Translation. This is my version of it. Jesse was reading, I noticed, from his version of it. His looks like it's got a lot more work in it than I do, so that's good. But um, what a study Bible does is, and you may be able to see this, it has the text of the Bible, but it also has a bunch of notes to help you understand and apply it. So in this particular passage, it says... Um, it has some notes on it, and it says, oh, my page turned, so that's, there we go. God's purpose behind this law was an expression of mercy. The law was given to judge judges and said, in effect, make the punishment fit the crime. It was not a guide for personal revenge. And that was the problem that Jesus was dealing with. Again, understanding this passage in its original context, the people were looking at that saying, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. If somebody does something to me, I'm going to get them back. It's going to be commensurate. It's not going to go crazy, but I get to take revenge on them. And that was the attitude that they had. And that was the attitude that Jesus is dealing with. These laws were given to limit vengeance and help the court administer punishment that was neither too strict nor too lenient. Some people, however, were using this phrase to justify their vendettas against others. People still try to excuse their acts of revenge by saying, 
I was just doing to him what he did to me. So get a study Bible that has good notes, that's the life application part of it, and get one that has a good translation. Again, I recommend the New Living Translation. So how are you gonna know that original context so that you can be a good applier of God's word? You need to maybe do a little bit of study. So that's understanding the original context. The law was in, given in a situation where there was unlimited vengeance to limit vengeance. Jesus is dealing with a time where they were using that limit on vengeance to excuse vengeance. That is the context. So we have looked at the R part of this. Now we're gonna look at the O. The O is to observe the biblical prescription. The context is kind of like the starting point, and then the prescription is the direction that God or the scriptures or the author that is reflected is trying to move people. You know, you started here, that's the original context. Well, what's the prescription? What direction? What's the trajectory that we want to go in? So it starts out with that, the eye, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and then he goes on, and what does he say? But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek as well. Now, this is not a prescription for taking abuse. Let's look at it in the whole context. If you are in an abusive situation, you need to get out of the abusive situation. Look, he goes on. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat to. In other words, if someone is trying to take something from you and it's forced on you, it's possible for you not only to not take revenge, but actually turn around and be generous, undeservedly generous to that person as well. They're suing you because they want to take your, your shirt from you. Well, when it's all done and said, they've won the court case, you have to give up your shirt you can decide to give your coat as well. You can go from forced to unforced. It goes on to say, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. This is where we get the idea of going the extra mile. It's from Jesus. And he's saying, you can go from a situation where you are forced to do something to unforced generosity. That's the, so we see the original context and we see the direction that Jesus is trying to move people in. And so you, you recognize the original context, you observe the biblical prescription, and then I, you identify the ultimate ethic. What is the ultimate ethic? If you were to kind of like draw, draw points on a line, like here's the original context, Here's the prescription that we see in the scripture. Well, let's connect those dots. Where does that lead? And this is a beautiful illustration of that because it doesn't leave the where does it leave up to us to figure out. It charts all three of these steps in this particular small passage from the Sermon on the Mount. So it again, starts out with an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth and ends up with if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it too. What has Jesus done? And this is in your notes. Jesus has moved us from unlimited vengeance to unforced generosity. From 
compulsion to freely offering, from taking vengeance to being generous. So you can see how it charted all along the way. So the point of that passage is not to be a doormat, not to be a, a, to let yourself be abused. The idea is not only do you not have to take vengeance on people, you can actually be generous to people who don't deserve it, who are trying to take from you, you can decide to give to them. That's the ethic, the ultimate ethic that's being described here. So let's take that now that we've looked at that case study and apply it to these two passages in Titus that could be challenging using ROI. So masters, uh, uh, here's, here's the thing about this. Also, the ultimate ethic is not always going to be identified just in one passage. One of our paradigm pillars is that the Bible is a unified work. In other words, what the Bible teaches as a whole is true. So you can't just take one little verse and build a doctrine around that. You have to take into account everything that the scriptures are saying about something. So that's what I'm going to do with the issue of slaves and masters. Same, same author, Paul, this time writing to the church at Colossae, says, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Same author, Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says, For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. And similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. So let's kind of pull all of these together. Um, what's the original context? The original context is that slavery was a given. And to say that some people deserve to be slaves, some people are just by nature should be enslaved, was about as controversial in that context, context as saying the sky is blue. It was just naturally assumed that some people are going to be slaves and some people are going to be masters. In that context, for the Apostle Paul to say, look, here's the way things are now. Yeah, there are, some of you are slaves. Some of you have masters. Even some Christians, but it would have been many more slaves than masters. Are, are, are ma some Christians are masters. Let's remember this, that... Every one of you who is a master, you are actually also a servant because your, your, your God in heaven is your master. And for those of you that are enslaved, Christ has set you free. There's nothing that man can do to you in some respects because you are free. And so therefore... Rather, masters than looking at as a slave-master relationship, your slave is now your brother in Christ. It's kind of like I was thinking about this. Some people are very critical of the scriptures, and it's like, okay, so you encounter a parent. Parent has two kids. One of them has one of those plastic toy bats and begins to beat his, his brother with uh, one of those bats. And the parent says, stop beating your brother. 
Now, most of us would say, that's, that's, a good, that's good parenting. You know, you should probably do that. But, that. but people are critical of the scriptures in the same way that somebody might be critical of that. Well, you're just telling him to stop beating his brother with that bat? Uh, does that mean that you are okay with him beating him with his fist? Does that mean that you, you don't want him to share toys with, uh, with his brother? It, it's that kind of thing. When you dealt with a situation, the original context, and the Bible gives a prescription, stop beating your brother with that bat, then that's a good thing. But you, that doesn't mean that it's the entire prescription and you need to think through that. So what's happening here? Here, it's saying, look, slaves, don't steal from your masters. Don't beat your brother with the bat. Masters, be kind and considerate to your slaves. Transformational, totally countercultural. Don't beat your brother with a bat. And then the Apostle Paul, as he's reflecting on it, says, you know what? Remember this, too. If you're a slave, you are free in the Lord. And oh, by the way, if you're a free person, a, ma a master, then you are Christ's slave. What, what the gospel does is so radically transform the relationship of slave and master of 2,000 years ago that the seed of slavery, destruction, was planted in the gospel. That's why whenever Christianity takes root throughout world history and around the world, slavery tends to be uprooted because the gospel completely undermines the justification for slavery and totally transforms the relationship, redefines it as brothers in Christ rather than slaves and masters. Let's do the same thing to the issue of marriage. Now, just for context, basically Christians have come down into two camps when it comes to the role of women in marriage and in ministry. This is a little bit inside baseball, but it's important for you to understand because you might uh, encounter these terms or people who have these perspectives. One is called complementarian. And again, this is a spectrum. This is my summary of these two different approaches. It's different people are going to have slightly different takes on it. But a complementarian approach says that men and women are equal in worth, different by design. They're not interchangeable. The differences there are there on purpose. And therefore, they fulfill specific roles specific roles in the home, specific roles in the church. The other major approach is called egalitarian. Egalitarian says that men and women are equal in worth, so they're completely in agreement with that. It also says that they are distinct in design. It recognizes, most balanced egalitarians recognize that men and women still are different, but it also affirms that men and women are equipped for any role in both the home and in the church. Now, another pillar that we talked about is that the Bible is meditation literature. The Bible was designed to prompt ongoing reflection and response. We see that in 
people's approach to slavery throughout the years. It went from a given in the culture to something that people said, well, does that really make sense in light of what we know about the gospel and the new relationship we have with one another in Christ, and therefore transformed people's response to that particular social structure? Is it possible that the same thing could happen in our relationship between the sexes as well? So it says, uh, again, pulling in other contexts, this is the most extensive treatment that the Apostle Paul gives to the topic. It's in Ephesians chapter 5. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave up his life for her. Now let's use our ROI, the original context for this. The idea that women were supposed to submit to their husbands was a given. I mean, there were, that was not at all controversial. And when the Apostle Paul gives that instruction, he's fitting right in with the conventional wisdom of the day. When he shifts to addressing husbands and he says this, literally, in the same way, what, uh, that, that probably raised some eyebrows. It's like uh, husbands and wives relating to each other in the same way. No, 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 that's not how we do it. And when he goes on to say, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. When he uses Jesus as the example of how husbands are supposed to treat their lives, what did Jesus do? He laid down all of his authority, all of his power, was born in humility, in poverty, and then lived his life, and then went to the cross and willingly died, offered his life as a sacrifice for us that we might receive forgiveness, that we might receive new life and fresh starts. That is radical. And what he's saying is, husbands, Christ is your example. He didn't exert his authority. He laid down his authority. He didn't, serve to, he didn't try to subjugate his church. He served his church to the point of sacrificially laying down his life. That was radical. That was countercultural. And so let's think about this. If that is the original context and we see the biblical prescription Yes, there's submission, there's, there is following each other's, there's following someone's lead, there is serving others, but it's a lot more mutual than what you're used to in your culture. What's the biblical prescription? What direction is it moving us in? And that should give us insight into what the ultimate ethic is. And this is something that I noticed for the first time. I've been looking at reading this, studying this passage for decades. And this week as I was studying it, this is the first time that I noticed this. This prescription, this idea of how husbands and wives are supposed to interact with one another is in the greater context that begins back in verse 18 where, again, another famous passage, the Apostle Paul prescribes being filled with the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? That means that God's Holy Spirit, for you as a follower of Jesus, lives in you, resides in you, is supposed to be the controlling influence in your life. 
not your anger, not your desires, not your frustrations. God's Holy Spirit is supposed to be the controlling influence in your life. And to help his readers and hearers understand what he means by that, the Apostle Paul uses three subordinate clauses. For non-grammar people, that's the words that end in ing to help us understand what he means by being filled with the Spirit. Here's what they are. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music, that's subordinate to that. So if you're going to be filled with the Spirit, it's going to make a difference in the way that you speak and in the way that you speak to one another. Second participle, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's going to make a difference in the way that you speak to one another. You're going to have an attitude of gratitude, like Gracie is learning about in school and in the kids' zone today. <laughs> and thirdly, if you're going to be filled with the Spirit, you're going to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that is the exact phrase right before he starts dealing with husbands and wives. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, because I reverence Christ, I am going to subordinate sometimes my needs, my wants, for the benefit of others, just like Christ did. Now, all too often, what people, even sincere believers in Jesus do, is look at that structure for marriage and say, yes, well, that means I'm going to be large and in charge in my household. And can mistreat their children and their wives. And here, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, if you're filled with the Spirit, you're constantly figuring out how to leverage what you have for the benefit of others. You're not thinking about how you can get your way. You're thinking about how you can help the other person to get what they want. Is it possible that in the same way that the gospel radically transforms the relationship of slave and master so that it, it totally changes the power dynamic and, and in the case of slavery, destroys its underpinnings. Is it possible that the gospel can so radically transform people's approach to marriage that it becomes something more beautiful and more healthy and more life-giving than sometimes we can even imagine? I'll end with this story. Um, one of... Uh, one of the best compliments that I ever met. And this has been a process for me because I was like, you know, I don't fit in any of these camps. I'm not a complementarian. I'm not an egalitarian. And I was having this conversation with somebody that knows my family really well, has observed us up close and personal over the long haul. And, uh, and she was asking me about this. And I was like, if I, had, if I was pressed, I would, I would tend to be, and this was several years ago, more complementarian in the marriage, but egalitarian in ministry. And she said to me, you say that, and this was the compliment. I'm not sure she meant it necessarily as a compliment right at first, but she said, you say that, but I don't see that in your relationship with Sue Ellen. I don't, I, I don't, I don't see that. I see you 
in essence, she was saying, I see you coming together. I see you working together. I see you coming to a consensus. I don't see one person enforcing their will on the other and the other being a, a, a doormat. And uh, strong men do not want women who are doormats. The, the ones that really want a subordinate wife tend to be the weak men, just as an observation. So, uh, so she was saying, I don't see that in your relationship. And that got me thinking, am I really complementarian? <laughs> because I don't live that out. I live out that Sue Ellen is a gift of God to me. And if I overrule her or force my way, I am walking on thin ice because God gave her and her differences to me as a gift. And so I better be really careful because God is probably trying to protect me, trying to bless me in the differences that I have in my wife. And we are supposed to fit together and complement one another, yes, but we work together. So I don't know exactly how that works out in your life, but I do know that the gospel, when applied, will transform your relationships. I'm going to skip through some of the other verses. This is just the Apostle Paul reinforcing this idea that you are supposed to care for others and consider them, not that they are more important than you, but to consider them more important to you than you. Not just look out for your own interests, look for their interests of others. And so what we have said is if you're going to apply the Bible skillfully and accurately, you're going to recognize the original context. You're going to observe the biblical prescription, which way are they moving us, and then identify what is the ultimate ethic. So ask the Lord. Maybe you've misunderstood the Lord. Maybe some of these cultural things have, have creeped into your relationships and your perspective, and you need to get back to the gospel and see what direction is the Lord trying to point you in. Maybe you need to get a life application study Bible so that you can understand these things and have a little bit of insight that you just wouldn't have on your own. Maybe you need to make this a habit that you're showing up on a weekly basis to worship with your friends. And I'm stuck here, Dustin, so if you can help me. Uh, worship together so that you understand as we explain the scriptures and apply them. And then thirdly is to say yes to Jesus. He is better, more understanding, more holy, more righteous, more kind than you appreciate. And so when we say yes to him, we're just kind of opening it up and saying, Lord, lead me, guide me, Whatever way you want to lead me, I will go in that direction. Now, in your cards, your check-in cards, these next steps that we talk about on an ongoing basis are right there at the bottom. If you just circle that, that'd be your way of indicating that this is what you're doing today. And in particular, if you're saying yes to Jesus for the first time, just do a double circle on that so that we can follow up with you accurately and completely. So that's what we're talking about today. And God can transform your relationships and give you insight and understanding if you will let him. Let's pray, and then I'll give you an opportunity to discuss. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and kindness. Help us to 
be skillful, good interpreters of your word to do the work that needs to be done and give us the insight that we need to know how we might apply it in our lives. Thank you. Pray that you would show each of us exactly how we need to apply what we've heard today and then give us the courage and insight that we need in order to walk it out, to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.